Our sermon text as we're continuing through the Gospel of Matthew, getting close to that final moment of his crucifixion is in Matthew 26, 47 through 68. It was actually a little longer, so I couldn't fit it in the bulletin. But if you have your Bible or a Bible app like most people seem to use now, uh, we will be in Matthew 26, verses 47 through 68. I invite you to follow along. This is God's Word. While he was still speaking, Judas came to came one of the twelve, and with him a great cloud, crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, and he drew his sword, and he struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. And many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, that from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it? that struck you. And so ends the reading of God's Word. Father, we do ask now that you would attend us once again with your Spirit as your Word is proclaimed so that you would uh, show us the goodness of Christ and how we need His mercy. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, injustice is a very ugly word indeed. It's, it's hard to deny its existence, but unfortunately, it's 
actually easy to mistake so many other things to be injustice when they actually are not. And today in the world, everything seems to be blamed on injustice, whether it actually has occurred or, or has not. And it's unfortunate because that cheapens the tragedy of true injustice in the world. There is this barrage of misinformation or conflicting information or incomplete information about any and all kinds of issues of the day and it has created a culture of distrust and anger. But it is true that injustice does exist that it's existed since the fall of humanity into sin. And it leads to an atmosphere of bitterness and hate and anger and a whole host of sinful actions that only help to feed the fire of distrust and build this uncertainty that exists in our world. But the reason that that exists, the reason that injustice exists is because we do not trust God. And we see that in our text this morning. Injustice exists because people do not trust God. Our story, this narrative we get of Christ's arrest in trial is certainly a great injustice. Picking up where we left off from last week in Gethsemane, Jesus has risen now from prayer, having resolved to accomplish the will of the Father for the redemption of sinners, no matter the cost. He will be betrayed. He will be abused. He will suffer and He will die. He will bear the weight of our sin and receive the just punishment for that sin in our place. He who knew no sin would become sin for us, as the Scriptures say. And that doesn't seem fair at all. That does not seem just. So as Jesus finishes speaking to His weary disciples in the garden, in walks the betrayer with a crowd to arrest Him. And we're immediately confronted with three different groups of people or characters or individuals that are opposing Jesus Christ. They want Him arrested. They want Him tried. They want Him executed, albeit for different reasons. And all three of these major players in the arrest and trial of Jesus reflect and demonstrate the injustice that we see and feel in this world. They teach us what true injustice is, what it looks like, how we can find it and understand it. The first character of note, of course, is Judas. We've been introduced to him before. We know he's the betrayer. He's been waiting for that moment to strike. And so he makes his move. Jesus' prediction from earlier in Matthew chapter 26 uh, that one from his inner circle would betray him is now coming true. Matthew doesn't tell us how Judas knew where Jesus would be, though Luke does explain in his gospel that Jesus had a custom of going to the Mount of Olives to pray. Judas knows this. And so as Jesus takes Peter, James, and John apart to pray there in Gethsemane, Judas scampers off to the high priests to alert them, I know where he is. Now's the time. Make your move. Arrest him. And so a great crowd follows Judas as he leads them to the corner of the Mount of Olives in Gethsemane. And they are armed with swords, we are told, and clubs sent by the religious and the political leaders of the people. 
And to Jesus' small band of disciples there in the garden, this would have been an intimidating sight. They are surprised and outnumbered. And Judas approaches Jesus and he uses a symbol of affection as a means of concealing his poisoned purpose. He uses as a standard greeting of the day. He says, greetings, Rabbi! And he kisses him. He uses an image of friendship and affection to betray the Lord Jesus Christ to his adversaries. I mean, here is one who pretends to be a friend who had followed Jesus closely for three years of arduous ministry and now using the closeness of their relationship, he seeks to benefit himself to get that bag of silver by betraying Christ. He's willing to use Jesus to improve his own wealth. You see, injustice will use others in an effort to promote one's self-interest. It seeks to gain by taking away from others, sometimes doing so in the name of friendship or fairness or equality even. And the Bible has a word for that kind of injustice. It calls it the sin of covetousness. Covetousness wants what others has, and it seeks to gain it by any means possible, even deceit. It stirs up hatred and distrust towards one's neighbor. And Judas is the very embodiment of that sin. The second group we see opposing Jesus are the ones who sent Judas and the crowd, the chief priests and the elders, as we read in verse 47. These are the religious and the political leaders of the nation. The chief priests were the pastors of the people. They were granted with spiritual authority. They were supposed to lead the people in of Israel in the worship of the one true God, pointing them to that Messiah who would come. But now they strike out against God in the flesh. They want to end His life. The very people that ought to have been leading people to the Messiah now lead people against Him. See, injustice turns the truth of God into a lie and it leads people away from His love and peace and goodness and joy and mercy. The elders were the political leaders of the people. These were those who ruled over the civil life of the nation. And as such, they were supposed to protect the people. That is the purpose of the civil magistrate, of government authority. They were supposed to uphold justice by maintaining God's law in the world. It is so often the case with human governments, they fail the people they are supposed to protect. And here they are now turning with the religious leaders against Jesus, the Son of God. In fact, we see later in our texts in Jesus' trial that the elders, along with the chief priests, they try to actually use the law that they are supposed to uphold to bring a charge of blasphemy against Jesus. You see, injustice will claim to follow God's moral law in order to conceal the fact that it is actually violating it and harming others. And the third group we see here that teaches us about injustice in our world is the mob of the public that come, the crowd. 
They're probably made up of servants and slaves, the chief priests and elders. There may have been a few others sprinkled in as well, perhaps some Roman soldiers to try to keep the peace. And they are following the lead of their authorities and they also turn on Christ. And they come, we are told, with clubs and with swords. They are armed. They are ready to do violence against the king of kings. The crowd wants his blood. And so Jesus even questions the crowd in verse 55. He says, Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? That term robber in our English Bibles is, is, is more forceful and nefarious than one who simply uh, shoplifts or breaks into a home and steal. It's a term that is used to refer to insurrectionists and rebels who turn to dramatic and violent acts to further their agenda, as, uh, such as even assassination. And so in modern thought, think of a terrorist. Jesus saying, are you coming at me and treating me like a terrorist? Even though I sat in the temple day after day teaching you the peace and truth of my kingdom. The crowd was falsely treating Jesus as one who uses fear and intimidation and violence to further his purpose when Jesus did none of those things. And for that, they were ready to do violence upon him. You see, injustice will fuel anger and violence towards others. And so let's summarize all that and see here uh, what we learn about injustice. It uses others to promote its own self-interest. And injustice will turn the truth of God into a lie. And injustice will claim to be righteous to conceal its unrighteousness. And injustice fuels anger and violence towards others. We also see that those who are committing this injustice against Christ come from all segments of society. You have Judas, who claimed to be a disciple, a friend of Jesus. You have the chief priests, the spiritual leaders, the the pastors of the people. You have the elders, the political leaders of the people. And you have the people themselves, the crowd. In other words, you have people from every kind of Uh, every walk of life, every segment of society wrapped up in this greatest act of injustice the world has ever seen. The betrayal, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And what are they all driven by? What leads them to do this uh, horrific act in this terrible moment? It is their lack of trust in God. They have rejected the word of God. They have rejected what God has revealed to them regarding the Messiah, and so it is easy then to reject God the Son. You see, the kingdom of this world has big time trust issues. We don't trust each other, but our biggest trust issue is that people will not trust the one person whom they should. They will not trust God. They will not trust the one who offers them certain peace and hope and deliverance in this mess of a broken, sin-cursed world. 
And it is that lack of trust in God and, and the certainty of His promises and His Word that creates the injustice we see unfold around us in ways great and small every single day in every corner of the world. To put it another way, injustice exists in the world because people would rather worship themselves than worship God. I mean, take every social issue and debate we have in society today. Life versus abortion, racism and social justice, capitalism versus socialism. All the conflicts exist in this world because as humans, we do not want to worship God by default. We would rather worship our own wisdom, our own selves. I mean, worship means we must trust God. It means we must submit ourselves to His law and His promises. We must acknowledge Him as our Creator and King. And that is the one thing that we as humans by nature don't want to do. As we read in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray and each has turned everyone to his own way. We're only seeking our own interest. And when we do that, we treat each other sinfully. We treat each other unjustly. We would rather rebel against our king to become kings ourselves. And it is for that reason that we commit acts of injustice against one another. I mean, think about this. When you despise God Himself, it sure becomes easier to turn against those who bear His image. And that leads to a second problem. Because we see all the sin, all the injustice, all the brokenness, the mess that is there. And then we turn to things and try to trust other things other than God. And when we do that, it only makes it worse. You see, when we try to make the world better by trusting the wrong salvation, the wrong things, we only make it worse. And we see that with Peter's purpose stand, how it complicates this matter in the garden. Matthew tells us that immediately after Judas was, uh, has betrayed Jesus, and the armed mob moves in to seize him, they take him, we're told that one of those who were with Jesus, this is in verse 51, stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now this disciple is Peter. Matthew doesn't tell us that, but other gospel writers do. And it should be no surprise, based on what we already know of Peter. He is the bold one. He is very confident. He's the one who has boasted that he will follow Jesus to the death and never deny him. And so here he is now, drawing his sword, charging into the fray. And he manages to do some damage. Uh, The language that Matthew uses implies this wasn't just a small flesh wound and cutting off the man's ear, but he strikes a heavy or a severe blow. It may have been fatal if Jesus hadn't stepped in and healed the man. And we're meant to feel the ferocity of Peter's attack, for it adds weight to Jesus' rebuke. He says in verse 52, Put your sword back into its place. For all who have take who take the sword will perish.
perish by the sword. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean uh, that there's never a place to defend others. This isn't a statement, a proof text for passivism. In fact, the scriptures are clear that there are times where it is right and wise, though unfortunate, that the sword is used to protect others. But what Jesus is giving here is a warning to Peter. You see, Peter was doing what he thought was best. He thought that he could step in and defend Jesus. He would solve this problem of injustice right now with the end of his sword. And he does that despite the fact that it has been revealed to Peter again and again that Jesus was going to be arrested and suffer and be crucified unjustly. In fact, that very night, Jesus had revealed that one of the twelve would betray Jesus. Peter heard that. This was the fulfillment of God's revealed word predicting the suffering of Christ. It was all necessary if Jesus was to accomplish His redeeming mission in the world. And Peter should have trusted that, even though he may not have understood it. He should have trusted God's sovereign and perfect and wise plan being fulfilled before His very eyes. But despite all the revelation that Christ had given him, he didn't. He takes matters into his own hands. He draws the blade. He charges the crowd And by doing that, he's acting like the very crowd that had come to take Jesus. Peter attacked the high priest's servant with his sword, doing great damage because he wanted to defend Jesus from the injustice unfolding in the garden. But that only added to the conflict and the suffering. You see, when we try to save the world from sin and injustice through conflict rather than the cross, it only leads us to more suffering and more injustice. And that is why so many ideas and movements and plans of humans cause more hurt. Racism is a sinful injustice, but critical race theory which promises to end racism only creates more. Abortion is a tragic injustice against the vulnerable, but some people have been willing to uh, even bomb abortion clinics or murder its practitioners in the name of life, taking life. The advance of the gospel in the world is the mission of the church. But during the Crusades, the church sought to conquer the literal world with the edge of the sword. Answering injustice with the sword only creates more suffering. Those that live by the sword will die by the sword. And when we try to save the world by trusting the wrong things, we only make it worse. But thanks be to God, there's a better way. It's the way of the cross of Jesus Christ, the way of the gospel. You see, it is the quiet confidence of Christ in this narrative that confronts the injustice of the world and answers it once and for all.
Unlike Peter, Jesus does not lash out at the crowd. He does not confront the injustice committed against him with more conflict, but he allows it to unfold. He allows it to happen. He's willfully giving himself up. And the reason he does that is because he understands and knows it is part of God's ultimate plan to end injustice in this world forever. And the only way that would happen would be through the cross because there had to be an answer to sin. And so he's willing to allow the suffering to unfurl. You see, he could have called an entire host of heaven's armies to deliver him. Notice his response to Peter's swordplay. In verse 53, he says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? The size of a Roman legion, uh, if Jesus has that unit, that military unit in mind, uh, it's debated by historians because it's kind of changed over the course of history. At this era, it was probably around 6,000 men, give or take. Some think it was lower. But that's a sizable force. So 12 legions would be around 72,000 men. And just to give you an idea how big that is, in this region of Palestine where this is unfolding, there we, we think that there were roughly 59,000 Roman soldiers stationed at that time. And then notice this. Jesus doesn't say... My father could send 12 legions. He says, don't you think that I could appeal to the father and he could send more, more than 12 legions? The idea is that he could send the innumerable host of heaven to deliver Christ in that moment if that was his will. But if that were to happen, salvation would not be accomplished. But Jesus doesn't need Peter's sword. I mean, as Emmanuel, God with us, the power of heaven is at His command. And yet He willfully, willfully gives Himself up, as the Scriptures say, for the joy that was set before Him. He would endure the cross, despising its shame. Why? So that He might bring the final victory over all sin, including injustice. So He doesn't rely upon Peter's sword or heaven's armies. Twelve disciples with swords or twelve legions of angels were not the right answer. They could not erase the very source of all injustice, which is the sinfulness of our human hearts. Only the blood of the Lamb of God could take away the sin of the world. And so it was necessary in God's sovereign and scriptural plan to redeem people for His name that Jesus would go through this suffering. And so He asked Peter in, in verse 54, He says, If I called the angels, if I did that, then how would the Scriptures be fulfilled? This must be so. The Scriptures must be fulfilled. If Jesus had deviated from the covenant sign, or the covenant design, rather, that God the Father and God the Son and the God the Spirit had written down and orchestrated and agreed upon before the creation of the world, then He would not have been the Christ. He would have been a false Christ. But He is who He claimed to be. He fulfilled every promise of God perfectly. It is 
that quiet confidence of his in the word of God that leads him to fully trust the sovereign plan of God with the wisdom of heaven. Jesus' obedience to the Scriptures led him to fulfill the Scriptures. And here was why we need that. Because Jesus fulfilled the Scriptures so that we, you and I, can be certain that He is the Christ. I mean, that's confirmed as we even move forward into His trial. As He is arrested, Jesus says, all of this has taken place so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. That is verse 56. That little phrase, take place so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, is a motif or a theme that we've seen coming up throughout Matthew's Gospel. He uses it at at careful and important places in his Gospel. When we go back to the very first chapter of Matthew and we see the birth of Christ, we see uh, that He is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and that Joseph, his adoptive father, is to name him Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. When we see that, Matthew says to us back then, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God taking on flesh in the person of Christ happened exactly the way God said it would happen generations before, born of a virgin. Matthew uses that phrase again so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled in chapter 22 as Jesus is about to enter into the city of Jerusalem for His triumphal entry. And then we find that He sends His disciples to find a donkey. They take that donkey and upon that donkey, Jesus rides into the city as a king as the people lay down palm branches and their cloaks to honor Him as a king. And the triumphal entry of Christ was the public declaration that Jesus indeed is that long hoped for everlasting King, the Messiah, the Redeemer who would deliver His people from all their sin and sorrow and suffering. And Matthew tells us, back at that instant, that this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And then we come to our text, and we see that phrase again, spoken regarding His betrayal, His arrest, His trial, and His crucifixion that He would suffer. His birth fulfilled the Scriptures. His life fulfilled the Scriptures. He was declared Messiah according to the Scriptures and His death, His suffering fulfilled the Scriptures. And so by the time His trial begins in verse 57, there is no doubt who Jesus is. This is the Messiah, the Son of God. False witness after false witness is brought in by the high priest and the elders, the Sanhedrin, to testify against Jesus. Uh, But they could not find Him guilty. You see, according... The Jewish law was required that two witnesses must have the same testimony for something to be true. 
And when you're trying to get false testimonies, it's really hard to get people to agree on their facts because they're making up details as they go. Finally, at least two witnesses agree though, and they say, as we read in verse 61, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple and to rebuild it in three days. And this is a serious charge indeed. But it is formally false. Jesus actually had never said, I will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. He said, this temple would be destroyed, speaking of Himself, His body, and risen again in three days, speaking of His resurrection. For Christ is the new temple through whom God's people enjoy God's presence forever. But to the Jewish courts, This sounded like Jesus was an insurrectionist worthy of death. I mean, the outcome of this trial was already decided before it began. In their minds, they wanted to put Christ to death. They wanted Jesus dead. And they would do whatever it would take to commit this act of injustice against Him. And yet, despite those unjust proceedings, we find that Jesus just sits there and listens. He doesn't refute their charges. In verses 62, we read, And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And it is the silence of Christ that is also a fulfillment of, of the Scriptures. For in Isaiah's picture of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, he tells us that the Messiah would be oppressed and afflicted like we see happening here. And yet he opened not his mouth. He let it happen. It was his quiet resolve and commitment to the plan of redemption. And so it confirms what we already know of what we can be certain that He is the Christ that we need. And you even get a sense that Caiaphas the high priest knew that as well because he asked Jesus, I adjure you by the living God. He's saying, swear to me by God's name. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus says, you have said so. You got it. You are correct. But he adds, I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus tells Caiaphas, he says, you're right. I am the Christ, the anointed one of God. I am the Son of God, meaning God himself come to save his people. And then he adds significance to that by saying, I'm also the Son of Man. That is the eschatological, the end times deliverer of God's people. And when the Son of Man comes in the book of Daniel, it is said that He will come in judgment upon all injustice and all sin, including what was happening in that room that evening. Jesus fulfilled Scripture. So we can be certain that He is the Christ. We can be certain that this promise that He will come in clouds of heaven to end all sin and injustice forever is true. And because of that, because we can be certain that Jesus is the Christ, there's one final thing that ought to give us joy. We can be certain of our salvation. 
we can be certain that we will be delivered if we are in Him. See, even when injustice in our world seems to have its day, we can be certain that the justice of God will come to pass because Jesus did come just as the Scriptures said once before. And He did suffer and He did die just as the Scriptures have said. And He did rise as we will see in the coming weeks just as the Scriptures have said. Therefore, it means that our salvation, if we are in Him by faith, is also certain. So we don't have to trust the wrong things to try to solve the injustice of this sinful world. But we can show the world the love of Christ Jesus who suffered the greatest injustice so that He might give us this certain salvation. When you see others treated unjustly, hold forth the love of Christ in the Gospel. And when you are treated unjustly, let the suffering of Christ be your hope. Don't respond with the sword. For Jesus, the Son of Man, is now seated at the right hand of God, having completed redemption. And He is coming then on the clouds of heaven. And He will give us that peace once and for all that passes human understanding. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful that we don't have to try to solve all the problems of this world. For indeed, we cannot. We further complicate it. We further make it difficult. But Lord, You... In your great wisdom have sent Christ. Of this we are certain. For he has fulfilled every promise, every word. He is our true hope. So Father, help us to rest in that. Help us to trust that it is the gospel that meets every problem of injustice in this world. That if we show forth the love of Christ, we show forth the truth that changes hearts and draws people into your peace, the peace of your kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.